Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman, and I'm here with my co-host, Lara Chen Baker. Hi-yo. Hello. Here at Jackie Winter, our roles put us right in the center of the action, in between client and creative, so we get to see all sides of the process. Every week, we come together in the IKEA mom drawer that is our recording studio and dissect three different links we've come across during our recent internet travels. We use these as a jumping off point to look at what's shaping the issues, processes, happenings, and ideas across the creative industries today. This week, we're going through our open tabs and we'll be discussing performance reviews, inbox infinity, and what etched cucumbers have to do with hustle culture. Helping us bring some outside perspective today is our very special guest, Alex Daly. Alex is the founder of Van Alexandra, Daly PR, and now Daly. She's the industry's crowd sorceress, a member of the Forbes 30 Under 30 class of 2016, and a frequent speaker at festivals and events for designers, innovators, women entrepreneurs, and big thinkers. Dubbed a Kickstarter queen, crowdfunding guru, and wonderkind, she has managed crowdfunding and PR campaigns for Oscar-winning filmmakers, Pentagram Partners, MIT Media Lab inventors, Neil Young, Joan Didion, and of course, TLC, naturally. In 2017, Alex authored her first book, The Crowd Sorceress. Get smart, get funded, and kickstart your next big idea, published by Hachette. Basically, she's bloody amazing, and we're very happy to welcome her to the show. I think as our maybe first actual American in America and not an Australian this in America. Season, yes. This season, yes. It's almost always an Aussie expat, so we're very excited to have a real live American joining us. <laughs> Alex, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you guys for having me. You, you just flew back in from London. Are you all jet-lagged and groggy? Oh, yes, I am. But I, I drank a coffee about an hour ago. So that just gave me a nice little bump and uh, helped me out a bit. Yep. Sounds good, Jeremy. How are you doing? You're wearing a fabulous shirt today, if I may add that for our listeners. Thank you. It's yes, it's it's a wonderful color of salmon. Well, yes, I'm not no, in a polar. It's like a, a ochre, I would ochre? say. Really? Salmon's pink. That's like a deep brownie, maroony, beautiful color. Anyway, super into it. <laughs> I'm so glad. Thank you, Lara. <laughs> we can talk about this in your performance review, which will be a, exactly. A, a, oh, another good segue from you, good Jeremy. Segue. Almost, almost. Um, Alex, just curious, what's the polar vortex situation at the moment? I sort of flew right into it. We landed about. 30 minutes before we got hit by a micro. They're calling it a micro blizzard because we were driving in a cab back to our apartment after landing and like just swells of wind and snow. And then it just like stopped after 45 minutes. And then it started, it just became frigid, freezing cold. I don't know what it is in Celsius, but it was like eight degrees feels like negative 13. And it was bonkers. Yeah. I mean, I was bundled up. But, you know, it's it's back to normal now. Just just really chilly. <laughs> it sounds nasty. Claire, one of our producers in New York, sent us a video of a night of someone in the Midwest had like gone out with wet hair and with the wind and the temperature, it had like frozen up in like full like super saiyan mode <laughs> it was oh crazy but it's beautiful and sunny here again as always so uh just like our dispositions <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very jealous <laughs> well, yes, we're really looking forward to getting stuck into our links and hearing your particular feedback on them. I mean, you have a really unique background in PR that we're going to get stuck into in a bit more. But yeah, I think you were brought to our attention through Bianca, our managing agent and producer over there in New York and introduced, I think, through Ladies Get Paid through the Slack channel or through an yes. event. Is that right? Yes, I think that I was at the one of the first Ladies Get Paid events and Bianca was like in the drink line with me. And I was like, you're cool. Of course. Just, <laughs> it off very quickly. 
Awesome. Really excited to have you on. So, Laura, let's get straight into it with your link. Tell us a bit about this. All right. I have got a piece from The Cut here, uh, one of my favorites, and it comes from their piece of work column. Also, just like a great name for a column about work. All about workplace behavior and feelings, or as they put it, everything that happens at the office except your actual job. So, as the title, it's Everyone Hates Performance Reviews. And I mean, the article is pretty much what it says on the box. They're talking about performance reviews here. I want to read first directly from the article. They say, chances are, no matter where you work, when you are hired, or how frequently your manager gives you feedback, in January and often dragging into February, you'll be called into a meeting with your supervisor who will tell you why you're a worse employee than you thought and possibly present you with a piece of paper summarizing the reasons why. This is more or less how 60 to 90% of employees, including managers, feel about performance reviews. And yet nearly 90% of companies hold them annually. As well as being nearly universally disliked, annual performance reviews are also expensive. In 2015, the consulting firm Deloitte said its employees and managers spent 2 million hours a year on performance reviews. In 2014, Gap told HuffPost that it spent $3 million a year into reviews. While some companies have in recent years moved to eliminate the formal annual review process like Accenture, a global consulting firm which employs more than 330,000 people, they often complicate matters, requiring different departments to come up with their own individual techniques for evaluating employees. In essence, the thing itself is very bad, but getting rid of them is also bad or at least very complicated. So that kind of sets the tone for the piece and it's it's really more of that from there. Now, the various percentages that the writer quoted just there come from a range of studies and the number, of course, we have to acknowledge would shift from industry to industry to country to everything else. But across them, the studies all kind of show that the majority of people do not feel positively about performance reviews. And that's not just the people receiving them, but also the people giving them. So they go on to quote. And does it, it does it really define though, like what they're kind of saying a performance review is though? Well, yes and no, because the thing is they have taken into account various types of reviews. I don't know what those specific studies were looking at, but in the article itself and the people, the, the, the experts that they talk to, they are looking at all sorts of things from your sort of 360 to your one-on-ones to your sort of stock standard sit-down annual performance review. They sort of quote a lot from this guy, Samuel Colbert, who's this professor of management at UCLA, and he made waves with this op-ed against performance reviews that was published in the Wall Street Journal. And then he later wrote a book about it. And in his words, everything about performance reviews is deceitful and dishonest and bogus. They're a fraud. So the way that he sees it, the performance review dynamic is inherently doomed by the opposing goals of sort of manager and employee that when it comes time for an annual performance review the employee sort of walks in wants to hear all the good things that they've done the contributions the sacrifices they've made they want to know that they've been seen that they've been valued that they are going to be rewarded for that and then the boss sort of walks into the room to tell the individual all their faults and so his argument is that this dynamic kind of erodes trust and you're sort of requiring that the person who hired the employee you know to be the same one tasked with breaking them down and how this can be a major cause of low morale in the workplace and an obstacle to sort of straight talk, honest relationships. The article also mentions what some see as the other sort of essential crisis inherent to the performance review, which is that supposedly they don't really work. Well, at least not according to this guy, Kevin Murphy. He's the chair of work and employment studies at the University of Limerick, and he's the co-author of a book called Performance Appraisal and Management. So according to various research that he um, sort of consulted, most people believe that feedback is important and useful, but research has shown that it's not necessarily true. About a third of the time, it makes things better. About a third of the time, it makes things worse. And the other third of the time, it has no effect at all. Some studies show that there's only one sort of relatively short period where 
manager feedback is like really truly constructive and that's when the employee's just been hired. But once they understand those duties, feedback can have like little to no effect on overall job performance, which is kind of insane considering how much time and energy we devote to giving and receiving it. And then the other thing is that like, you know, in most situations, there are a lot of factors that push reviewers to give mostly positive feedback for various reasons that I'm sure we can all understand. So studies show that 80% of all employees are rated as above average, which of course is like, you know, a mathematical impossibility. And then because of this, even the positive stuff isn't really that rewarding or motivating to the employee. So anyway, what is the alternative then? Because like surely there has to be some system for feedback and improvement, right? Like you can't just let people continue on doing their thing if what they're doing isn't on the right track or is forming bad habits or affecting others in the workplace. And most employees, especially those who enjoy what they do and want to keep doing it, keen to improve them, you know, improve their skills and become better at what they do. So how do you go about doing this if it's not performance reviews? And the article, sadly, doesn't really go too deep into alternatives, which is a bit frustrating. Samuel Colbert's Wall Street Journal piece, which from the looks of it was pretty in-depth and it had like hundreds and hundreds of comments. I'm sure it would be great to read in response, but it is now behind a paywall and I was too stingy to pay the money to read just the one article. But yeah, the only mention in this cut piece is this sort of brief note about how employees want to see their managers as allies, not antagonists. And so it's better to find a way to work together to make improvements. But this, I mean, this kind of wishy-washy, it's not a solution. And overall, like I'm, I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with what this article says or even disagree with it for that matter. I'm just really keen to hear from you guys what you think of reviews as a whole and also what you think could potentially replace them. Alex, I mean, you have been running a variety of of companies and I mean, I imagine you sort of worked freelance and also in sort of control of employees. So like you're currently running daily. Do you do performance reviews? You know, we have annual reviews with my employees at the end of every year. And it also comes with just like a salary boost or, you know, next steps for the following year. But honestly, I have such a small team, you know, we're always giving feedback. And so this was like, that was what was so interesting to me about this article was that it really dove deep into like corporations with like thousands of people. And so there needs to be that structure, you know, and the manager has to give the review and there, there needs to be like this formality. But honestly, by the time that I give an annual review, a lot of that stuff I've already talked to my, one of like my employees about. So, you know, if there's something going on or something that I'm unhappy with, I really try to address it like sort of immediately and one-on-one with that employee. And then we like recheck in a month later, you know, two months later to make sure that that's being improved upon. So by the time like the annual review comes around, it's like a lot of the stuff has already been covered. So it's, I think it's really different for small companies. You know, I think that I've always done it because like, that's what big companies do. But I found that like immediate feedback and working closely with the employee to make sure that that feedback is being addressed is the way to go. What about when you were an employee yourself, Alex? I mean, what it was like to be on the other side of it? Honestly, I was always, when I was an employee, it was as a writer or as a freelancer, like I never got an annual review. I do have to say, and I think I've already told this to my team before, like as the employer, it's not fun to give reviews. Like I don't go in and be like, yay, I'm going to just tell this person who I actually really like, like all the things that they're doing wrong, you know? So I don't, (laughs) I don't like as an employer, I don't really enjoy giving reviews. I don't think it's really fun. And it's really funny because I'm a pretty confrontational person. I'm very direct, but when it comes to like giving criticism, it's, it's always been challenging for me 
So I just figured out what works for me and my company. And that's just giving iterative feedback on a more frequent basis versus waiting till the end of the year. Because if you do it on a sort of regular basis, always doing check-ins, then you can really see change over the course of a year versus waiting till the end of the year to give this sort of much bigger performance review. Jeremy, I want to hear from you as well, because we hear of a variety of things. And at one point in the article, they make mention of 360 reviews, which you brought up before. And for anyone who doesn't know what they are, it's basically just like where everyone, including managers, receives feedback from not just their higher ups, but also from their peers, their subordinates. And this guy, Samuel Colbert, who they quote a lot, he believes the anonymity involved in this technique creates fear. And also that there's like this problem of inviting too many perspectives to the table so that it's easy for the employee to discount sort of any or all of the feedback because people are really good at hearing only what they want to. So even in cases where the feedback is coming from multiple sources, we are inclined to take in the one bit of positive feedback over the seven negative reports. And here at Jackie Winter, we've done a bunch of different versions of reviews from your standard sort of annual review to 360 reviews to sort of frequent like one-on-ones and casual feedback sort of stuff. And now also like using things like 155 to do like weekly OKRs and reporting. Uh, Jeremy, I want to know like over your time testing different things, what do you think works best? Why? How did you feel about this article? Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. I think, you know, what Alex was saying about iterative feedback is something that I kind of that resonates with me because of taking something, a concept from a different industry, such as kind of coding and, you know, developing where you're kind of taking a more agile approach and kind of doing things, you know, kind of in these kind of smaller bits kind of as you go. That I found really interesting. And I'm always looking to do that. I'm always looking to kind of take things from whether they're much larger companies and, you know, how they manage performance reviews and how to kind of put that into something like Jackie Winter, which is a small business as well. Like we have, what, 12, 13 people here at the moment. When I'm looking at these articles as well, I'm always trying to think like, how can this kind of expand a bit in terms of the work we do? And I think it really goes back to one of the things we spoke about much earlier, which is just feedback in general. And like, feedback is such an important part of our role as producers or in any kind of creative field, because feedback is how you kind of is how you guide a brief in terms of kind of where it kind of needs to go. And so I kind of think about like, okay, well, if the business is kind of my brief, then how do I make sure that everyone is kind of getting feedback in the staff to kind of execute on our vision or kind of what we need to do for our clients and artists, et cetera. And yeah, there's no kind of one answer. And it's really, and that's why I think this is something interesting to talk about because I'm interested in getting your feedback and what Mm -hmm. it was like being on the receiving end of it. But I kind of think that, you know, (laughs) reviews for me, it, they're not really about getting new information in a way, but like a lot of it's just kind of about just creating that time and space to actually kind of formally check in. And making sure that when we get all the 360 comments from all the other members of the team, ideally nothing should kind of be new. And typically the, a good review is when something come out of them and be like, well, you know, there was nothing really new there to kind of discuss, but it kind of reaffirmed kind of what, you know, I was talking about or what I kind of thought myself. I mean, and that's interesting and hard as well. I think it just kind of goes to show how important making good hire in the first places and how important the job description is. And I kind of look at the job description as our kind of brief in terms of what everyone is executing on. And I think that's a lot of really what's missing kind of in companies in terms of people start jobs and they actually don't know what they're supposed to be doing. And I think one of the best things and most effective things that I did was write a job description that said, okay, these are the things that you're going to be expected to do. This is kind of what defines kind of success kind of in that role. And that's what we kind of judge things on as well. And 
we kind of we outline kind of these are what the kind of um, financial kind of steps are that kind of take you up, et cetera, and just make that kind of really kind of clear. And that kind of extends into our whole philosophy of project management in terms of having a good brief. So I kind of think that the, you know, the reviews are kind of the feedback. And if to kind of generate that brief and kind of to get it kind of in the right direction. And yeah, one of the, my favorite things that we do as well, and this kind of comes from software as well, where we're using this piece called um, small improvements and they had mm. this little kind of access chart where, you know, we, everyone kind of fills out it independently. And I forget what the exact, the two accesses are. I think one is effort and one is output. I can't even remember now, but it's, yeah, it's like, it's like effort and success or something like well, but I, it's like yeah you, you're kind of plotting a point of where you think you are on those two things and i kind of plot a point but i don't see where you plot it until you do it and so it's a really kind of nice way to kind of see like okay this is like a physical representation of kind of where we're aligned so see, I, I find that the hardest part <laughs> of the whole thing a hundred percent because like if i am actually given a chance to speak or write my sort of but oh my god that gives me so much anxiety because it's like you don't want to plot yourself too high even if you feel like you have been doing well because the last thing you want is for your thing to be higher than your boss's one, you know, like that's the worst. <laughs> so I think everyone puts theirs lower than what they actually think because no one would want to have theirs above what their boss has rated them. Well, that that's, would be an, that's an interesting thing to, to think about. And it's a great, it's a good thing to kind of talk about in terms of it's like, well, you can have that conversation. Like, yeah, why did you put that there? And that, that's where I kind of think tech is really kind of interesting in terms of being able to open those, open those opinions. And that's kind of why I think, yeah, the thing I'm excited most about is what we're doing now, which is. I call it 15.5. You said 155. That's interesting. 15.5. I think I meant to call it 15.5. Okay. Who knows? That's, Change it every time. That's basically this thing I thought we would never actually do, which is kind of based on OKRs, which is, God, what does it even stand for again? I don't even know. I don't know. Objective key, something, something. But basically a way that we can kind of set goals and it kind of, it does kind of prompting as well, kind of for feedback on, on objectives and key results. Ah. And then also it has this kind of high five feature where kind of people can kind of praise other people and it puts it in Slack. And then this whole idea that it kind of collects it in this kind of one, you know, in this kind of one place. Therefore, when we have reviews, it can be a bit more useful as well. Well, because that's one of the big issues, I think, with reviews a lot is that I'm not here, but in other places where your review tends to be very focused on like the previous three weeks before the review, you know, because it's really hard to remember how someone has performed across the year. Of course, there might be like key markers of like they brought in X amount of money or they got these clients, but all the smaller stuff, all the day-to-day, like, you know, when they wrote a really really great email that helped get a client over the line or they, um, I don't know, were just like really caring with their colleagues or whatever it might be that's important to you. That stuff is really hard to remember when you get a year away and things like 155, whatever you want to call it, good for cataloging all of that stuff so that when you get to the review, the employee doesn't feel, because I found as an employee, I find that really hard in, in other businesses where like you get to the review and they sort of say you should yourself like document these things so you can bring them up in your review. But that feels weird too. So it's nice when something else does it for you and and your peers have also kind of documented all these lovely things that you've done throughout the year. It's funny. I, I think the only reason I started a business is because I hated performance reviews. I, <laughs> I, I think I literally cried on both occasions. Once when I was denied a raise and the other when something else was said that I was very defensive about it. It's really hard to take that feedback. I think How- I've cried in like every performance review we've had here though. But I I like I say that saying that like performance reviews here, as much as I naturally, it doesn't matter how well designed it is, I will always freak out about a performance review because the idea of someone like judging me on anything like of my personal characteristics or effort or motivation is like the most terrifying thing ever. So performance reviews, I always feel like sick the days leading up to them, but they've always been fine. Like we have a, we have a very good system and they're great and they're very constructive and it's a wonderful opportunity to bring up 
big things in a really honest, straightforward sort of situation that you don't always get when you're in a workplace surrounded by other people. I, I like it. I like I like it. That's convincing. Um, but I like them, but I will always feel uneasy about them as well. I mean, and that's kind of one thing I want to make sure that I'm getting reviewed as well during that time. And that's kind of something that I have started to kind of introduce and also really kind of put back on everybody. Like, you know, what are the questions that you want me to answer rather than uh, and just kind of make time for that? I mean, Alex, I'm just curious as well. It seems to be you're in a hiring process at the moment. Is that right? You're bringing on some new people? We just went through the process of bringing on a business consultant who we've just sort of been a company that's just going, going, going. And never really had the process of doing the formalities of like doing an employee handbook book and an operations manual and all this stuff. And I really just saw everything in a completely different way by actually formalizing it and putting structures in place. And it was the first time that we actually did job descriptions for everyone, which is like you were saying, like actually has completely changed how we work. We also do like a training checklist. So there's a job description, you start the job and like every week we make sure that like you understand like every line of that job description. So like if, you know, down the line, there's any problems, you can actually go back to that piece of paper and you're like, this this is what's not working. This is what's working. And you can actually have something physical to be able to, to reference, right? So I think that in general, having those systems in place really facilitate just the experience. And how do you get feedback from your staff? For you as like a manager and owner, is that kind of part of you know, your culture there? Yeah, we, we really have like an open door policy. I mean, we're an open layout. So it's a funny way of saying that because we're all sitting in the same space, but like, it's really important to me that if there's an issue, like my employee, like reaches out to me, sets a time to, to, to talk about it. And I think that that really informs the culture that can be anything from like something happening personal and you need a personal day off or like, just like this isn't working or like a client is being really problematic. Like, how can I be working with them? So we have like a very intimate, you know, open dialogue about things. And so it also makes the feedback process so much easier. And also I wanted to bring up in terms of like just performance reviews, I think that going back to like it being a very sort of corporate structure, I mean, I think that when performance reviews were a thing with big companies, we didn't have stuff like Slack. We didn't have stuff like email, right? Like this is, I think, completely changed the way that we offer feedback, you know, in small companies. It's like you can Slack your employee and be like, this isn't working, you know, and that's a piece of feedback. So I think that that's really changed just how we talk and, and converse and share things together is is all these new systems of, you know, CRMs and Slack and email and text and all this stuff. And I think that it makes these really sort of stringent yearly, once a year performance reviews seem really brittle and, and super cumbersome. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, I think we, we've spoken about similar issues with that in terms of digital communication as well. There's definitely upsides that for the frequency, but there's also downsides in terms of also dehumanizing it in a way. And I think the the challenge of actually giving negative feedback or critical feedback in person is a really, really hard thing. But it's also something that I think is important to kind of develop no matter kind of, you know, what you are, just kind of making sure that, you know, what position you are and just making sure those difficult conversations are kind of still happening in a physical way. And I just also think, as a creative or as a client or someone who commissions creative work as well, it's really important to know how to give feedback and develop that kind of muscle because I think there's it can be so often that especially when we're dealing with the brief and we have a client who doesn't really know how to give kind of give feedback or know how to kind of critique something, things can go on really much longer and actually get a lot worse because, mm. you know, they've been afraid to kind of say something negative or they haven't figured out the right way to kind of say it, et cetera. So I Until think it gets 
way too late yeah yeah so i think the idea of bringing it in very kind of frequently like into culture and and having tools that kind of allow for that is great but i think yeah it's some it's a tool that can be and should be democratized more i um, mean that's why i really like 360s in that way so look i think it's something to think about you know whether you're a manager or employee so laura thanks for bringing us the link alex thanks for your feedback on that we'll move on to our next link from here My turn at the moment. My link from this week comes from The Atlantic. Um, this is something that B posted on our professional development Slack. It's a piece by Taylor Lorenz making a case for what she calls inbox infinity, pretty much the opposite of the inbox zero concept, which is started by Merlin Mann in around 2007 and something that I personally adhere to myself for various reasons. But um, Taylor writes that despite all the developments that have happened kind of in email, in tech, that we receive more email than ever, apparently 269 billion emails a day are sent and received, which is projected to go to 333 billion in 2021. And this is a piece that kind of came really kind of shortly after the new year. And she goes on to basically propose a new year's resolution to basically just let it all go. And she goes on to say that part of the reason why we get so many emails is that we've all been told the story about how we need to respond quickly to be productive and meet expectations. I will talk a bit more about that in our final link. And this was said by John Zarotsky, an author and designer who worked in the tech industry for 15 years. But if you respond quickly, you have a reputation for being responsive. People send you more messages and it kind of feeds on itself. And so Zaretsky also once subscribed to Inbox Zero before he realized it was burning him out. Again, I think we're going to say burnout pretty much in every episode for the next year, at least. <laughs> Seems like it. It's a recurring theme, you know, and it's like everyone's finding their own coping mechanisms for email. However, Taylor then goes on to propose her solution. And she says, all these coping mechanisms are inferior to one simple solution, Inbox Infinity. Adopting Inbox Infinity means accepting the fact that there will be an endless growing amount of email in your inbox every day, most of which you will never address or even see. It's about letting email messages wash over you, responding to the ones you can, but ignoring most. So I don't know why, but reading about this just really triggered me for so many reasons. I think the overall impossibility and furthermore, my own biggest pet peeve of not having emails responded to is very real. But looking closer, I realized that the reason this is so foreign to me as well is that I just don't have like kind of two inboxes. Like I, I remember when I used to, like I had a personal one, then a business one. But for me, I just have one inbox, right? And I mean, look, the whole inbox infinity idea isn't new. Taylor actually links to a piece from The Atlantic that was written back in 2015, um, which is called Inbox Zero versus Inbox 5000, a unified theory. We'll link to that in the show notes that discusses this more. But there's also Email Debt Forgiveness Day. It's a kind of a quasi holiday slash annual event that the podcast Reply All spearheaded where you get a, a grace day every year to respond to an overly overdue email. Some other solutions she brings up, well, you know, only one, there's an idea of this autoresponder. I don't know, doesn't feel right to me. Like we do it for all our artist submissions, but I think it's pretty clear that those emails are going to a group inbox and not to an individual. And, you know, spam is obviously an issue, but I just don't know how I feel about a world where something actually written to somebody that asks for a reply kind of just doesn't get one. Uh, you know, for me, the email charter we discussed earlier, which I couldn't find online anymore. I don't think it's if it's around, but um, I'll try to find the link again. It was it was a bit more of a saner approach to things, but this just feels like a Band-Aid fix to a deeper problem. So some which might be a bit more systemic and some feels like it might be a bit more personal. It's just like I don't understand how anyone actually gets the level of emails that they're talking about here. So Taylor's saying she gets 400 emails a day, which I just don't get mm. it. And in this I mean, actually, this article came off the back of a tweet from Helena Price and she wrote some of the most valuable rules about email I learned from my early years doing startup PR. One, if it's important to you, follow up. Two, if it's important to them, they'll respond. Three, no response is a response. 
for don't take it personally. So look, you know, to that end, I really kind of thought, Alex, you'd be a perfect person to kind of talk to about this because you're actually in PR and probably get more email than any of us combined. I'm curious, Alex, what's your kind of daily email kind of count? Do you, have you ever looked at it or do you have any idea? It's hard to gauge that. I mean, I read and respond to emails pretty quickly, but I would probably say, I don't know, like a hundred perhaps, but I am also shooting off like tons and tons of emails a day at the same time. This, this actually, this article was very, I mean, it really sat with me and it really, and also that tweet, especially because it was like, it was very real. I read it to my team and we deal with that like on a daily basis. I mean, we're constantly pitching for our dozens of clients and like, we won't get an answer. And that means that, you know, that means I guess they're not that interested, but it was very hard hard for me to read this because, and I really started looking at other responses to this article. And I do feel like in a way, journalists have the privilege of not having to respond. We don't have to, but I do think, and there was that word used by, by another journalist saying that like, yeah, like inbox zero is almost impossible, but like it does come from a place of privilege to say that you don't have to respond to emails because like, Massively. I can't do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, mean, I, can't. I can't as a company founder. And I definitely can't as someone that works in PR that's representing dozens, dozens of people. And I'm sure you guys are the same because you're agents, you're producers, and you have to be representing your clients. You can't just like have emails coming in and you're protecting these people, right? Like you have, like you're representing yeah. them. So you can't just have an email come in and not respond to it. So I had a hard time with that. I think I have a hard time with Inbox Zero because like that can just almost be impossible sometimes. But I do really try to manage my inbox. But at the same time, I could never do inbox infinity. And I really think that only journalists can do it. Like who else can allow that to happen? You know, I actually read another Fast Company piece about somebody that just didn't respond to email like for a month. Like he was like, I'm going yes. uh, We saw that. That went around our office as well. Yeah, but at the same time, like, his assistant was reading the emails. So somebody had to take care of the emails. You know what I mean? Somebody had to mark them as urgent. So I just don't buy it. I, I couldn't. Like I'm like, you got oh, journalists, you guys are, you're allowed to do this. Like you can get by with this because you can only respond to the things that you want to write about, which sometimes you only have to churn like a story or two a day, right? So like you get 400 emails in and my journalist friends do say they get that many, right? So they only have to pick two out of the 400. Like, I can't think of another word than like, damn. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> what's your kind of own approach? And I mean, to, to managing email and like, you know, do you have any policies that you yeah. kind of implement in your team as well? You know, I think it's really important when it comes to clients that like to respond if it's in business hours. So like we actually have in our contracts that like, if it's not between 930 and 630 Eastern time, like, we'll get back to you and we can like, I think that boundaries are really important. That includes like no email on the weekend, like you're not indebted to respond to an email on the weekend. But if it's business hours, if it's between 9.30 and 6.30, you should respond to a client within an hour saying like, I'll be getting back to you soon. Because I think that responsiveness is important in like the in the work in the work that we're doing. And I think that like I'm in the services industry, right? That's another big thing. Like I service my clients, so I can't just not respond to them. You know, it doesn't work like that. We are really about like one of our, I guess, pillars is hustle. So like we want to show that in the way that we digitally communicate. So 
we hustle, we get back to them. We want them to know that they're being taken care of. You know, that doesn't mean that like if they ask for a press release that we're going to get it done within an hour. It's that like on it, we'll get this back to you in two days. Being in the services industry, you know, taking care of your clients is incredibly important. And that means really, really smart, efficient, hustling digital communication. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, one of the, we've, definitely talked about and B raises it a lot as well, that idea of responding to someone to at least give them like a status, you know, like if you can't take care of it, then when will you be able to respond to them just so they know what's happening? And like, I have been on both sides where like, even that feels like, oh my God, I don't have time to do yeah. that. Or it feels like a pat. You sometimes you don't even want to tell the person that you're not going to be able to respond to them. You just want to put that off. And then I've also been on the other side where my, my real estate agent does not respond to anything just to even say that like she's received it and it drives me mental. Oh my God. Because it's basic communication, right? Like if someone said that to you, like in real life, if I was like, Jeremy, are you free to chat later? And you just were like, just blanking me. <laughs> like it would be super weird, right? Yeah, if, if you took any email behavior and put it into real life, it would be hilarious. Oh, massively <laughs> hilarious. And also if like every time I spoke to you, I was like, hope you had a great weekend. Alex, I just agree with you because I think there's a really big difference between requiring that people take action that the email requires like immediately and responding immediately or within reason. Because like, it's, I think it's crazy to think that someone is going to, the second they receive your email is going to action whatever it is you're asking for. Like, you yeah, can't I mean, that's, assume that. And that's the interesting thing is like, you know, by, it requires a lot of self-awareness to realize what sending an email actually does. Because mm. that is like, you are putting an item on someone else's to-do list, basically, every time you yeah. send them an email. And I think there needs to be a lot more kind of self-awareness and mindfulness about, you know, what that actually means for someone else. So like, that's what I meant by having it a bit more of a systemic issue and rather than kind of totally but yeah. that's why like I always try to include uh, when I remember like I try to include realistic like in my email realistically when do I need them to respond to me by because there are things that like I actually need right now you know like I need them I need to know within the hour and then there are things that like you know what if they don't get back to me for till the end of the week that's completely fine. And I think it's polite to give people, well, to help people prioritize the stuff that you're sending them, you know? Yeah. And I think also giving giving them an out is a big one for me as yeah. well. It's like, I need, like, I always, when I write something, I say like, you know, like, this is what I need. If like, it's not possible. If it's yeah. not possible, please, tell me. please do this. Or yeah, just kind of tell me. And I think yeah, people are uncomfortable kind of saying no. And that's another, this is another thing I really love picking up on from the 37 Singles kind of base camp philosophy mm. as well. It's like, you know, saying no can sometimes doesn't mean saying yes later as well. And sometimes like, that's been my approach, like be really soft. It's like, instead of me saying no, I say, oh, I can do it in a month or something, yeah. you know? And then eventually it comes back in that month. I'm like, fuck, I just did it just to get rid of the email, yeah. you know, <laughs> just to clear my inbox. Sorry, Alec, you were about to say something before? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I think that there, there is like a really clear line between like, I will get back to you or got it or on it and that sort of thing so that they know they're being taken care of. And when I say they, I mean, my clients is like, that's how we make money, right? It's like we service our clients. But I also think that there is like that, that fine line, because if you were, if you start delivering things within an hour, you really set up that expectation that that's how it's always going to be. And then you're just putting yourself in a terrible situation, right? That like, you're always going to be delivering constantly. Like you want to set up expectations. You want them to know that they're being taken care of, but you also want them to know that like, this will take me 48 hours or this will be done next week, you know? And if you're, you have a client that needs you to have it done every hour, you know, every day, then that's not a good client. <laughs> 
Absolutely. And this is why I think it's such an important skill. Like if you're someone who like we are like being a client and like being said no to helps you kind of say no and set expectations better. And like, yeah, I'm someone who when I'm commissioning people, I don't know if they're listening to this now, but like I'm someone who always wants something kind of immediately. Of course, like everyone wants things kind of immediately. But every time I've been told no, or like, you know, that's great, because at least like kind of a conversation. And I think it's kind of healthy, because then it says like, well, I want something tomorrow. And they're saying like, well, I can get it done in three days. There's never been an occasion where I said, that's not acceptable. Or there's never been a reason no, that that's not acceptable. Things, yeah. You adjust things. But when someone says, if I say, like, I want tomorrow, and someone says, yes, okay, I'll, I'll do it, and then it doesn't get done, that's yeah. like that's just like poison, you know? And I think yeah. that's why people don't respond to emails as well, because there's this fear there of letting the other person down rather than actually acknowledging that letting the other person down is sometimes the best thing that you can do because you're actually responding to them and being heard. And this kind of links back to what we were talking about to reviews. Like everyone just wants to be heard and acknowledged, you know? And I think, yeah, for us, especially when we're just kind of at like at the end of a commission, when we ask for final art or knowing when something's kind of cleared and we don't hear back and then just like we're literally ghosted, but then we might hear back from that client the next month with like, hey, here's a new brief. It's like, oh, that's great. But what happened when I, you know, I really needed yeah. you back then. And yeah. So it's and like, they're like, here's a new brief. I need to know costs within the hour. And you're like, but I, that, I, but I, <laughs> it's that is frustrating when it's not that sort of two-way thing I guess like I my thoughts on it it's like it's funny because there's so many think pieces on email and managing email and email burnout and blah 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 all over the internet and yet I get that it can be exhausting that it can be stressful but like I just I feel like I don't know maybe I'm living a different life to some of these people because I don't find it as like overwhelming and I mean this guy he was saying that at the start, he says, like, I spent seven hours sifting through more than 2,700 emails I had accumulated over the previous month, which, like, I mean, what the actual fuck? Who the fuck is receiving that Shut many up. emails? Like, if you're, like, <laughs> the prime minister or you're, like, some celebrity, but if you're, like, a regular Joe or Josephine, you should not be receiving that many emails. That is just someone who has signed up for too many promo things and they're now just, like, suffering the consequences of their, like, click happiness. But, like, yeah, Jeremy, I'm like you. I don't really have two inboxes, like, one for personal, one for work. I use my work one for everything, which means I'm also, like, completely screwed one day if I leave here because every single online account I have is, like, linked to my Jackie Winter email. It's my master data mining plan. Oh, my God, work. I knew it. But, yeah, I also just, like, don't use email for personal stuff that much at all. Like, I have newsletters. I have, like, the few brand emails that I'm subscribed to. But, like, I feel like I'm pretty good at keeping it only to the ones that I actually want to receive. And, like, I happily pop them in folders to read when I have the time. Like, that's the benefit of using Gmail. And then I don't really use email for, like, personal communication at all. Like, if I'm going to talk to friends or family, it's over text or Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram or in person. And I just, I don't know, I never thought that was weird, but it seems like most people are using email for a lot of their personal lives and I'm, I'm really not. And I can't, as you said, I can't turn off work emails, obviously. So like what option does that, does that leave me with? And the, the options it leaves me with is finding a system to manage it, which the writer kind of like scoffs at, like, mm. oh, these people thought that they could manage it by using these systems and ha ha how naive they were. And I'm like, well, screw you and your ability to just ignore your inbox because most of us can't and having a system is not a bad thing at all. <laughs> Learning new systems is fine. Like that, I mean, that fast company piece about the person who like Ivan Cash, where he did that experiment of not checking his email for a full month. Like we all laughed so hard about that in the office. Like the automatic forward to his assistant, that's not not reading your email that's forcing someone else to do it. Like, And then he also had that auto reply explaining what he was doing. And the auto responder like included this line, as part of my continued exploration and feeling balanced and creatively nourished in the 21st century, I'm taking a sabbatical from email. And I just thought, oh, fuck off. Like, it just really, that really 
Yeah, oh, when, I, when you know, I send the invites to Creative Mornings every month, and like we yeah. always get like a million bounce backs. But it's like, hey, you signed up for this, yeah, you know. And it's like sometimes the tone of it is just, oh, anyway. Oh God, I feel you. But like I, the other thing that, like, in his autoresponder, he said like people are totally free to call, text, send snail mail, whatever. But like he wouldn't be responding to emails. And like again, there's validity in the point that email can be a massive time suck and it can be stressful. But cutting it out altogether is just not feasible. And the thought of people calling me all the time instead sounds so awful. Like that's my nightmare. Emails I can reply to in my own time. I can consider my responses, but phone calls I think are far more disruptive and distracting. Plus like, I don't know, a lot of the other points you made in the article were just dumb and very funny. And if anyone wants to talk about it with me, I had feelings, hit me up. But like the point is that like I'm all for managing your time in a way that is both efficient and healthy and sustainable but ignoring your emails a la, you know, inbox infinity isn't a solution. It's just like creating more problems, I think. Well, actually systems are, I think, so important if like email isn't like, I mean, everybody, if you're working, like who, who can ignore their email? Can we actually talk about that? Who has the privilege to ignore their email? I really think it's just journalists or are, we, are there others that we don't know about? I mean, I maybe like a fine artist. Yeah, <laughs> right. like, no, but that, oh God, no, no. Anyway. I, they yeah. shouldn't. Yeah, they shouldn't. I, I don't know. I mean, personally, I don't subscribe to Inbox Zero either. I'd say my system is more like Inbox 10 and below, <laughs> which is like, it's about the amount where I feel... I feel like I've got things perfectly under control, like things are easy to see and respond to, but it also doesn't kill me trying to perfectly like file everything away, clear it instantly. And I also don't find it that hard to stick to. But also, I don't know. I just think if you're receiving so much stuff that isn't important enough to open, why are you receiving it in the first place? Unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. I actually went through that. I like purged my email inbox this year. I unsubscribed to like so many emails and it was just like the most freeing thing ever. I also, my boyfriend who is a fellow Aussie, got me into archiving my emails on MacMail, which was like, oh my God, has it saved my life. And it's just like, life it's, changing. So, it's like life changing, right? So it's like those systems are important because like you can easily search your email, you can tick it off your list. So I mean, I mean, Inbox Zero, I think is kind of crazy and well, you know, it works for some people, but like I, Inbox Infinity, I just think is ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous if you live in 2019 and you work in some sort and you need your email to make money. You know what I mean? Like it's not going to work otherwise. Lots of strong feelings. We'd love to hear from anyone else. If you got any opinion systems that you use, hit us up at podcast at JackieWinter.com. But no, thank you very much for the um, passionate opinions here. I think we'll move on to our final link now. Yes. And that is my link. And it's the New York Times. I actually got it from my friend, Otega. She has this amazing newsletter called Women Who. She's based in London. And it's just an amazing newsletter for, for creative women. And I always, every week, just love reading her newsletters because it's everything about, like we said, burnout or like how to do things more efficiently or, you know, how to take solo time. And so I think those things are all important. And this was, a, this was included. Um, it's a New York Times piece by Aaron Griffith. And it's called Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? I saw the greatest minds of my generation log 18-hour days and then boast about hashtag hustle on Instagram. When did performative workaholism become a lifestyle? And this was like, and I'll, I'll read some parts of it, but it was really sticky to me and really... I heard it and I was like, oh my God, I love this article because there was that amazing piece in the New York Times, I would say a few years ago maybe, about everybody talking about being busy. And I think this is like, 
all of yeah. this stuff, everything we're talking about is like the terrible symptoms of busy culture, which I think is just like the worst thing ever. And so basically she talks about hustle culture. She really cites a lot of WeWork and I'm going to pull up part here. Most visibly WeWork, which investors recently valued at $47 billion, is on its way to becoming the Starbucks of office culture. It has exported its brand of performative workaholism to 27 countries with 400,000 tenants, including workers from 30% of the global Fortune 500. And they basically really talk about how WeWork is putting this whole thing out into the world about needing to be busy, needing to be working all the time, needing to be a workaholic. And then they also talk about this Elon Musk tweet where he says that nobody ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. The correct number of hours varies per person, he continued, but is about 80 sustained, peaking about 100 at times. Pain level increases exponentially above 80. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt, yeah. Yeah, She starts talking about like the four-day week and like there's like this pendulum of like needing to work like a shit ton to prove that you're actually doing something important. And then there's also the other side of the pendulum, which is like the four hour work week or the four day work week and how there's been that backlash and like, where is the happy medium? And like these millennials are really getting sucked into being busy, into being workaholics, and really sort of talking about it on social media. And she goes into this really amazing thing called like the lust for Monday mornings. Like who the hell likes Monday mornings? But like (laughs) new culture of like, yeah, it's Monday, man. Like let's have some coffee and start the day and crush this week. And I see that a lot in like tech companies. It's like, who's the the crush? Oh Oh my God, crushing it, sick, you know, all that stuff. And it's like, (laughs) thing about like being the last person in the office. And if you're the first person to leave, like you're not doing a good job. So like, while I think inbox affinity is like, it really not going to work. I also think this workaholism and like projecting that you're a workaholic and like the hashtag hustle is just such a terrible symptom of busy culture. And there was something in this busy culture article like from a few years ago in the New York Times, which was amazing because they talk about how it's these people that are like, oh, I'm so busy right now. I have all these emails and like, I can't manage my emails. I have 400 a day or a thousand a day. I don't know how to unsubscribe from them. And so it's, it's just like this kind of like sick part of our, our culture to project that we're really important by talking about how busy we are all the time. You can tell that this is like really a pet peeve of mine, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know? people, my friends, in PR have to be some of the busiest people I've I've ever seen in my life. It's a and it is that kind of PRs often seems to like embody that idea of, of hustle. And you meant you mentioned that like hustle is one of your kind of like pillars of your company. So like I'm yeah. interested, like how do you define hustle and how do you stop it from becoming something toxic? Because that word totally. hustle has has become, I mean, I guess a little bit toxic in recent times. So you know, hustle has to do with like urgency. So I think that we, you know, at Daily, we have a background in crowdfunding where we used to launch Kickstarter campaigns for designers and filmmakers and writers. That was my past company, Van Alexandra. And then we started having these clients come back to us and ask us to help in a longer term basis. And that's how we really sort of pivoted and I would say evolved into a modern PR company. And so the reason we have urgency, actually it's urgency is the word, but like hustle is always is constantly used is because when people started coming to us, asking us to do their PR, I was like, oh, hell no. Because I honestly, like I didn't like PR firms. 
firms because you pay them these huge retainers on a monthly basis. There's never a guarantee for any sort of results. And coming from a background in crowdfunding, like we couldn't do that. We didn't have the sort of luxury to say like, oh yeah, I don't know when this piece is coming out. Like we had to get press out and we had to convert that into money because that would be successful for our clients. So the word urgency has to do with the way we just approach stories and pitching. Like if something isn't working in the press, like we pivot and we find new angles to be talking about because I want to generate coverage and awareness for our clients because I feel like we're failing if we don't. And so I think that the urgency has to do with like how we attack storytelling and how we we don't take no for an answer. Like if, if a story isn't working, we're going to try another one. So that really has to do with like battling this whole thing where like we have to wait for the news cycle, which, you know, a lot of PR people say, I'm like, you can always create a new cycle on a daily basis. There's always something relevant to be talking about. So that's what we do with urgency. And that's where we talk about hustle is how we sort of approach PR and use our Kickstarter learnings for our PR clients. So yeah, I mean, but at the same time, like why we, while we hustle and we work hard during business hours, you know, I really struggled for the first few years of building my company. I had to learn how to do it from scratch. I had no background. I didn't take a business course. I didn't know anything. So I actually experienced burnout. You know, I would say it was 2016 when I was writing my book. I was like, I need to close my company. I am, I am so burnt out. And then I realized like, why don't I just change how we approach, how we do work? And so that's when we start, I started being like, I don't want people to leave here at nine o'clock, you know, like leave at six o'clock, leave at six 30, like get the work done during the workday. I don't want you emailing me on a weekend. You know, like I want you to have your personal time. You need your boundaries because if you don't have them, you will crash and burn. Like we just all start dropping like flies. And so for this hundred hour work week, like I, I just feel like it's so you can say you have a hundred hour work week. Yeah. So you can tweet you it out too. You. you can tweet about it. You know, like if you're efficient and you get shit done and you don't like meander and stay on social media all day and like shoot the shit, like you can be efficient if you want to be. So I think that the urgency like really ties to how efficient we are too. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things in the article that I really like, I would love to, for someone to sort of research further with it, they were talking briefly about like the decline or participation in organized religion, how that's falling, especially among American millennials and how they sort of now instead started to like worship at the shrine of, of work. I don't know, I just thought that was a really interesting concept. And I'd be so interested, just like from a, from a sociological standpoint of like how has work and loving work and showing that work on social media replaced probably what religion did for a lot of people and for a long, long time. Someone quoted in the piece said, like, it's creating the idea that Elon Musk is your high priest. You're going to your church every day and worshiping at the altar of work, which I think is, it's a really valid point. But like, as well as there's not just like this idea of burnout, because you can be not sort of burnt out, but also still feel this, like, I guess, guilt maybe about not like, being like so uber passionate about your work that you want to do it all the time yeah because like there's you might you you draw that line you okay you start at let's say you start at nine you leave at six or whatever you don't work on the weekends and then you almost feel like guilty because like am I not passionate enough about my work to not force myself to like do all this crazy stuff which obviously like when you think about it rationally is insane but I think a lot of people feel like that and I certainly understand that feeling of like 
I must be lazy. I must be unmotivated if I'm not feeling completely in love with my work yeah. because of that idea all the time that you have to love your work. If you love what you do, it doesn't feel like work, you know? Totally. But then again, like, yeah. I think it's also not just like a millennial thing. And there's also, obviously, there are people, I think it's crazy to say that there aren't people who genuinely do really love their work and like it feels like less of an obligation or at least or less of a chore it's not just a pay the bills thing because they are you know they do really care about what they do I think about like I can't speak for him at all but I think about something like my dad he's a programmer he really loves what he does he also works crazy hours and always has and I'm sure that he would love to work a bit less or you know whatever that might be but he's always been really happy to do that he finds it really interesting like he genuinely finds it really interesting and it's like it's never seemed like this big chore this big obligation to do it and of course like yeah if you didn't have to do it to pay the rent you might not do that thing and you might do it for less time but there's still a balance between enjoying the work that you like if you're gonna have to go to something every day for most of your life I don't think there's harm in trying to enjoy it well, I, you know, this is, that was another interesting thing about the article is like people needing to project that like, that's all they live for is their work. And I have to say, like, I bet, I think it's a bit of the founder's dilemma. Like I would love if my team cared about my company as much as I do. And I, my team is so passionate. They're so loyal. They work their asses off, but like nobody is going to care about a company like a founder does. I mean, my company name is my last name, you know? And so I think. Like, yeah. And to expect them to would be like really unreasonable yeah. as a boss, I think as well. Yeah. When then they don't have that same investment or reward from it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that a majority of the bosses do like they expect that like everybody yeah. in their company is going to love the work like, like that founder does. And that's just so unrealistic. It just doesn't work like that, you know? So I think that that's something too, that like bosses have to figure out that like, you're the only one that's irreplaceable. You know what I mean? Like you're the one that built this company. You're the one that started it. It was your idea. Like, do you know, build a team that supports you, but they're not going to project like this is their life because I think that that's a problem inherently. One thing I want to touch on just before we wrap up is that, I mean, this sort of this idea of hustle that's sort of promoted everywhere. But you counter that with the fact because like, it's always like hustle, make money, make deals, get paid, blah, blah, blah. But when you look at it in most, at least like in the US and Australia and the UK, wage growth has been stagnant for a really long time. And so this culture of like hustle, hustle, hustle doesn't even really correlate with like people actually sort of, I don't know, necessarily being more successful or, you know, so it's, it, it just doesn't really, it's clear that those two things aren't aligned in the way that you might think they are. I mean, I don't have really too much to add on this. Obviously, yeah, there wasn't a lot kind of new kind of brought up in here. I think it's kind of, it's riding this kind of wave of, you know, burnout that is kind of, we've been talking a lot about at the moment. I think that's, yeah, the one aspect I really kind of wanted to look at more was the whole idea of kind of religion and meaning. And because that's to me mm. kind of what it seems like. That's kind of what I personally interface with the most in terms of like, you know, you look at kind of just mental health in general. Like, And one of the funny things, yeah, you do hear that mental health is actually worse in more prosperous countries where, you know, like the concepts of anxiety and depression actually aren't there in kind of a lot of third world places where there are more, these kind of more immediate needs. So the more prosperous we get as a society and Western culture, then and we're kind of I mean, this, I don't want to get too existentialist here. But yeah, like as kind of a lot of the things that kind of held us up as society, like, you know, work is the, one of the last things that's kind of left there that people can can hold on to and kind of get meaning from. Yeah. And in a society that values, I mean, when you're looking at sort of capitalist structure, like that values money success over 
almost everything else, then it's understandable that unless you're striving to attain those things, you see yourself as unsuccessful and therefore you feel sort of unhappy or unfulfilled. And yeah, I mean, there's so many studies that look at this stuff and it's fascinating. And I think that's definitely the most interesting side of this. Mm, absolutely. Well, look, really great piece. It's definitely something that's been going around on our various kind of Slack channels as well. So if you have any thoughts, let us know. Alex, thank you very much for bringing this to our attention and for all your feedback. It was awesome. Thank you. Before we close out, it's time for our brilliantly named end segment. Thumbs up, thumbs down, Shaka. The time we dedicate every week to get the good, the bad, and the totally wicked off of our chest. Lara, what do you got for us this week? Oh, this could honestly be a thumbs up or a thumbs down or even maybe a shocker. I'm going to give it a thumbs up because it gave me some mighty, mighty joy this week, which is Ariana Grande's tattoo. I'm sure you guys have probably come across this by now, but basically she tried to get a tattoo recently in Japanese kanji and she wanted to say Seven Rings, which is like the same the title of her latest single. And that's all well and good. But fans, after she posted the picture, fans quickly pointed out that the tattoo actually translates to small barbecue grill um, which is like just amazing to me and then she like tried to get it fixed overnight and she sort of she tried to get it touched up with this other sort of symbol that supposedly means finger so that combined it would infer to mean ring but people pointed out that the way that it's sort of written out actually still just kind of means small barbecue grill finger so anyway I am all for it good on you and I hope she just like goes with the joke amazing Alex, what about yourself? Anything you would like to endorse, whinge about, or just kind of air out? I feel like this is a boring one, but like what's really sticking with me for the past week when I was in like cold and dark London was the amazing curry that I couldn't stop eating. Is that, mm, is that a good one? Is that a bad one? That is, that's legit. I did warn you at the start of the show that I'm very hungry and we shouldn't talk about food or I might get real angry, but oh, so damn, I would smash curry right now. Jeremy has this whole rule about no, not having curry in summer because it's too hot. Never. So when we all go to order Friday lunch, we can't have curry and it makes me really mad because I think curry is a fabulous summer food. You're, you can do whatever you're you want, man. You're wrong. <laughs> Just flood it all out. <laughs> Jeremy, what about you? I'm going to give a bit of a, I'm going to try to even things out with a bit of a thumbs down to the Instagram egg, which was ah. just reported on, on Fast Company that that Vayner Media says that the egg is worth at least $10 million. Which the is just, egg oh, is worth $10 million? Yeah. That's so ridiculous. Basically, he said that the first brand to crack out of the egg is worth at least $10 million. He went on to say that businesses, in fact, should spend on the egg instead of the Super Bowl. Yeah, I don't know. The whole thing is really crazy. We don't know how they're measuring the RI of the egg. I mean, there's so much happening at the moment, just like with the egg and ads and Super Bowl in general. So just- I'm going to close the show as I often do with my dream to just turn everything off and go run a farm. If anyone wants to join me, email podcast at JackieWinter.com. We'll go run away to a farm. I'm totally in it as long as you answer your email still. <laughs> Alex, where can people find out more about you? Um, where are you on the internet and various platforms? Give us the details. I am at daily, D-A-L-Y dot N-Y-C on Instagram and on the interweb. So come check us out. We just did a huge uh, rebrand and new website, which we're super stoked about. So please uh, go check it out. Awesome. Thank you so much for giving us your time this afternoon and looking forward to seeing what you get up to in the next year. Thank you so much. Oh, 
I'm Jeremy Wartzman. She's Laura Chan Baker, and this has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our theme music is by Totally Unrelated to Our Company, Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on SoundCloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you want more JWGYTB, archives of all of our shows and the links we've covered can be found at JackieWinter.GivesYouTheBiz. And if you'd like to receive all the links that we talk about on the show every week in one neat little package, you can sign up to our brand new newsletter at JWG.is slash newslettering. Again, JWG.is slash newslettering. You can also find us mostly on Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y and Winter like the season. And hit us up with any recommendations, feedback, questions, or comments at podcast at JackieWinter.com. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes, give us a review. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, all those other places. Or again, you can listen directly on our website, JackieWinter.GetYouTheBiz. Remember, this is an enhanced podcast. If you listen to this using Pocket Cast, Overhast, Castro, or Apple Podcast Player, you'll be able to see the links to articles as we're talking about them, as well as other visual content as we wrap it on. And if you work from an ad agency or design studio and are interested in our live extended version of the show called Open Tabs, be sure to check out opentabs.rodeo for more info. Thank you for listening. Catch you next week. Bye. Bye. It was interesting. There's actually another article in the Times kind of about ghosting in general. Have you? Did you read that by any No, fans? I didn't. I haven't either. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great one to talk about, Jerry. I was, I was you, you would have. <laughs> <laughs>